Well, we just finished declaring in song, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus. That's the yearning of Advent that we've been talking about this morning. And then we echoed this glorious phrase about this long-expected one. Here's, here's the line that we attributed to him. We said, Hope of all the earth thou art. That's what we called him, the hope of all the earth. Now that is a pretty big claim, would you agree? And it's a claim that Scripture backs up without reservation. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 11. Be reading from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 11. And if you're using the church Bibles and the seat backs in front of you, that's found on page 539, Isaiah chapter 11. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 10. But before we read, let's go to the Lord one more time and just ask for his help in understanding and applying his word. Father, we have your word before us and our hearts are anticipating hearing from you. Lord, we thank you for the gift that is your word, for your spirit which inscripturated these inspired and infallible words from you to us, your people. And, and we pray, Lord, as we encounter them. These words from so many years ago, written by the, the prophet Isaiah, we, we ask, Lord, that you just prepare us to glory in your truth, to see it and to savor it. Father, would you guard us from error and guide us in your truth now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's, uh, let's read Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all peoples, of, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is God's word to us, his people. Now, as we look back here at Isaiah 11, I'd like us to remember the context 
that we're reading here in the midst of this prophecy, we should not miss the desperate situation that God's people are in at the outset of this passage. Look at verse 1. David's once glorious kingdom has been reduced to what? Yeah, to a stump. Not sounding that promising now, is it? And actually, that's kind of the point. The point is that God's people are desperate for the Messiah. It's a kind of hopeless situation for God's people, and yet in the midst of their weakness, in the midst of their desperation and their sin, God himself is going to raise up a shoot from the hacked-off stump of David's tree. And you might say, wait a minute, where'd you get David from here? I thought this was Jesse's stump, right? Isn't that what it says? Verse 1, Jesse's stump. Right, and Jesse is whose father? David's father. So, so this tree stump, this branch root metaphor is just Bible language for one who comes from the line of. And oh, this second David, this little twig, this, this shoot, he's, he's going to start out small with extremely humble beginnings, but this shoot from Jesse's stump is going to change everything. Just look at for a moment what this branch from Jesse's line is going to accomplish. But by the time he's through, the wicked are vanquished. Verse 4. The apex predators are dwelling peacefully with their prey. Verse 6 and following. And the earth is filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Verse 9. Yes, this prophesied one to come from David's, from Jesse's line is coming to make all things new. Merry Christmas. Now, let's talk about fruit for a moment. Fruit being what this branch will produce. The, the fruit of this branch will be nothing less than the consummation of the entire created order. Which begs the question, how? I mean, how in the world can all this possibly come from the sawn-off stump of David's seemingly crumbling line? Answer, verse 2, the Spirit of God. This is not man's work. This is God's divine intervention. It's like Isaiah would say elsewhere, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So, so let's lean in here to verse 2 together. Uh, we'll, we'll look at it one more time. Isaiah eleven two, 2, and, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Upon whom? Right, the, this branch, this shoot from Jesse's root, the, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The point is that this shoot from Jesse's stump is going to be totally clothed by God's spirit. He's going to be saturated with the spirit of God to do the marvelous things that we're about to see unfold here in the rest of this passage. And we're given a number of specific ways, aren't we, that this spirit empowerment will be made manifest. Again, we get three couplets. We've got the spirit of wisdom and understanding. We've got the counsel with might, the, the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, 
Some take the number here to be very significant. You've got the Holy Spirit himself listed first. That's the Spirit of the Lord, and the Lord's in all caps. That's Yahweh, the covenant name for God, the Spirit of God himself, plus six additional Spirit of references. Let's do some basic math. One plus six will give you a total of seven. Very good, you're tracking. Which, which is seen often in the Bible, the number seven, as the number of perfection or completion. So perhaps, perhaps, this is similar to how the book of Revelation refers to, at several points, the seven spirits of God. This is a reference to the one perfect and complete Holy Spirit, like in Revelation 5, 6, for instance, where Jesus is described as a lamb excuse me, standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. Horns are power, with complete power, and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I like how the Expositor's Bible Commentary explains it, they say this. It may be that the basic description of the Spirit of the Lord followed by three pairs of qualities attributed to the Spirit is intended to add up to a symbolical seven. If so, the symbolism would suggest that the Messiah was to be perfectly endowed by the Spirit with everything needed for His kingly task. Either way... Whether these three pairings of spirit references are meant to be a lesson in biblical numerology or not, what is clear here in view, because it's stated very plainly in verse 2, take a look, is that the empowering of God's very spirit is all over this Davidic seed. It means at least that much, that the, the Holy Spirit has clothed this Messiah figure. So, it's no mere coincidence then when Jesus shows up on the scene. You know, right, right after the Holy Spirit rests on him, same language as in verse 2, rests on him at his baptism. And he says, back in Luke 4, we went through this several months ago now, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to do all kinds of amazing things, to proclaim the good news, to set the captives free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's Jesus doing here in Luke 4? He's saying, hearkening back to Isaiah, I am he. He's saying, I am the spirit-anointed shoot of Jesse. I am the one you've been waiting for. Welcome to Advent, friends. This shoot from Jesse's root is worth the wait. Now, let's pick it up in verse 3. There's this fascinating phrase. It's fascinating to me. In verse 3, at the very beginning, we learn that his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Now, we're, we're kind of used to this language, maybe, in, in church, but, but think about how strange this sounds. He delights in fear. He delights in a holy reverence before God. And because he fears God so much, 
He does not fear or judge like man, does he? That's how the verse continues. He doesn't judge by outward appearances, and we can see what's, he can see, rather, what's really going on on the inside. After all, isn't that the kind of judge we really need? One who can see through the outward appearances and assess the bedrock truth of what's really going on? I remember years ago when one of our cars died. We hadn't uh, been here in Pennsylvania long, and, and I needed to get a new one you know, work and stuff. Uh, so uh, I know this is going to surprise all of you here, but I know nothing about cars. Just Come on. <laughs> nothing about cars. You're, you're, uh, you're learning who I am. Uh, a lot of ideas, maybe not as handy as I should be. But, uh, but although that's true, I'm also a guy, right? I mean, I, I, want, I want something manly if I can get it. And I knew I couldn't afford a truck so as I was searching for a, a, a new, really a used vehicle, we stumbled across this used Jeep Liberty, and it was right in our price range. And I'd always wanted something with four-wheel drive, right? like a, a, a Jeep, and, and this thing looked great. I mean, it was sparkling clean. It was low miles from all outward appearances. This was a sweet deal. The reality, though, we were to soon find out was that this thing was a lemon. I mean, we had this thing in the shop. We had it for a little over a year. We must have had this thing in the shop about once a month. And finally, our, our mechanic, who had the ability, unlike me, to see beyond the outward appearances and assess the true value of that vehicle under the hood, finally told me, you know, maybe just be better if I get rid of this thing and find something else. I don't even think we made it much more than a year with that one. Uh, but, but sometimes, I don't know if you can uh, learn from that uh, <laughs> modern-day parable or not, sometimes we can get into these kind of predicaments, I think, where we, we can judge ourselves by outward appearances. Isaiah says, not this guy, not this Holy Spirit-inspired kingly son, the one we've been waiting for. He can see the issue behind the issue. He's able to assess and to discern what's going on deep down beyond surface level. As a matter of fact, he can see so well that even the poor and the meek, the most vulnerable in society, are treated under his reign with equity and justice. He's got the power, we see quite clearly here in Isaiah 11, the power to execute all his righteous plans. Check it out. He's not just judging, he's ruling, isn't he? I mean, he's conquering and establishing authority. He's going to rule with an iron scepter, with the, the rod from his mouth. He's going to slay, that's the word, Slay the wicked with his very breath. Think about that. He exhales and it's over. That's, that's power. But this is not for David's seed, an abusive or self-serving kind of power. Just look at verse 5. Look at these belt references we get. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Now, we're not talking about, with a, with a reference to a belt here in Scripture, merely an accessory piece. 
You see, in the ancient Near East, the belt would have been a critical part of someone's clothing. It was what gave stability or support to the entire outfit. It was what held it all together. So what's Isaiah saying? He's saying at the very center, at the nexus, at the core of who this righteous branch is and how he operates is righteousness. It's faithfulness. It's probably appropriate just to pause here and just exclaim to ourselves, what a king. What, what a king. Mighty in power, impartial in judgment, filled with God's spirit, clothed with righteousness and faithfulness. It's no wonder our hearts are yearning for the coming of this Messiah from the line of David. But just wait, it ramps up here. What we're about to see as we continue in uh, chapter 11 is a picture, just a glimpse really, of what the ultimate result of this Messiah's reign will look like. And it's it's just mind-boggling. Verses 6 to 8, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with a young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together. Can you even picture this? The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play with the snakes, play over the hole of the cobra, and the the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den." I mean, I'm I'm having trouble even picturing this in my mind's eye. Can you foresee a possible world in which this would be reality? Well, this is a picture, friends, just just a glimpse of the ultimate result of this Messiah's reign. And it is a glorious picture indeed, one that defies certainly our experience, but our imagination as well. This king's kingdom sweep will leave nothing untouched. There's nothing left in all creation that will be unaffected by this king and his reign. This picture of the natural order and what's happening here is is pretty clear. The bottom line is that the curse has been reversed. I mean, a wolf and a lamb like at peace with one another? All these apex predators just chilling with what used to be their dinner? A child playing in a viper's nest? Just, just, just think about it for a minute. These, by the way, are not just a random assortment of animals. It's not like Isaiah's closing his proverbial eyes and just picking animals' names out of a hat. The hummingbird and the platypus. No. What we've got here is a list of dangerous species listed alongside their natural prey. In a way, you might even say, we've got enemies side by side. And we're left in verse 8, at the end of this picture, with the very first enemy of humankind in the natural order. Who? Yeah, the serpent, the snake. Remember Genesis 3? 
And now the, the little child, the seed of the, the, the woman and the snake are, are living at peace with one another? Friends, what we have here is nothing less than Eden restored. Now, we could, as some do, spend reams of time and effort this morning trying to unpack precisely when this is going to happen on our handy-dandy eschatological charts and calendars. I'm certainly not, please hear me, I'm, I'm certainly not implying that it's wrong or futile to do that or to go deep with this sort of thing. But today, it's just not our purpose. This isn't just the, the, the right forum this morning to hash out whether what we're looking at here in verses 6 to 8 is a description of the millennial kingdom or of the new Jerusalem proper or perhaps of something in between. Offline, what I will say is when, when you think about Advent and Jesus' first coming, his, his first Advent, God in His sovereign, perfect wisdom came in such a way, although we knew a lot about what His coming would look like, biblically from the Old Testament, He came in such a way that everyone, virtually everyone, I mean the most learned scholars, the most pious and everyone in between, they missed him, didn't he? Didn't they when he showed up? So, I'm just going to go out on a limb. This is for free, just, just speculation. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it is likely that at the second advent, that at the second coming of Christ, there may be some nuances that you and I haven't quite figured out and placed appropriately on our End times graph. Translation, we're probably not going to have it all worked out perfectly. He's above us. His wisdom's above. It doesn't mean we can't know anything. There is objective truth that we should celebrate and rally around, but, but the point is not to get caught up in intramural arguments with brothers and sisters in Christ about secondary issues that we may not fully understand anyway. Don't miss the bigger point here that the Holy Spirit is just sort of laying in our laps. It's laid out plainly, I think, here in verse 9. <laughs> verse 9. What a statement. Here we have, I think, a sort of summary statement of this coming one's kingly reign. Let's, let's read it again. They, they shall not hurt or destroy these, these predators, these destructive forces. No more hurting, no more destroying in all my holy mountain. For purpose, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. How full? As the waters... Cover the sea. Ah, that's just, it's amazing. Don't you find yourself whispering to yourself after you read a, a statement like that from the Lord? Yes. Come, Lord Jesus, do it. Oh, that the earth would be brimming over with the knowledge of Yahweh, the one true God. No more destruction, no more harm being inflicted. 
All creation waits with eager groans and expectation for that day. Note, although we are not giving a time marker here, we are given a geographical place marker, aren't we? All of this is happening at a specific location. Where? Where is all this Edenic bliss taking place? Well, it's happening on God's holy mountain. This is where His glorious resting place abides, verse 10. Literally, the word here, most of our translations render it into English, glorious. The the word here is the Hebrew for kabod. Literally, you could render it, and his resting place shall be glory. This is where he abides. He abides in glory. And right here in verse 10, we are brought back full circle, back to the shoot from Jesse's line. But wait a minute. If you're reading carefully, the words have changed, haven't they? Look carefully now. God is communicating something marvelous to us here. The one who was referred to back in verse 1 as the shoot of Jesse is now being called, in verse 10, the root of Jesse. Now, I'm no botanist, but I'm pretty sure those two things are different. The the branch or the young sprout that comes up as a result is different than the foundation, than the root system, than the source. So so which is it? Well, it's, it's both, of course. And doesn't God do this a whole lot? I mean, God... God delights to do this sort of thing. He he paradoxically breaks our categories. In some mysterious way, this coming king, Isaiah tells us, is going to be Jesse's seed and also Jesse's source. After all, isn't this how Jesus just absolutely confounded, like laid the smack down on the Pharisees? At one point in the Gospel of Matthew, it's just too good not to, not to read it. This is fun. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. This is Jesus initiating, saying to the Pharisees, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Pharisees, knowing their Bible, said, Well, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, quoting from Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus continues, If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the Pharisees' brains cough, sputtered, and quit. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. What's Jesus doing? He's just pulling from Isaiah, and he's saying, this one you've been waiting for, this Christ, is more glorious, 
is more otherworldly than you know. Yes, he's the son of David, but he's also David's source. He's his seed, and he's also his Lord. This truth that Isaiah is prophesying about 700 years before Jesus steps on the earth is so central that Jesus himself reinforces it in the very last chapter of the entire Bible. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Jesus introduces himself as, get this, the root and the offspring of David. Right at the end of your Bible. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I am David's source and David's seed. Now, I really hope that this is starting to sound a whole lot like Christmas to you. You see, he really is a human child. He's a real baby. Real flesh and blood son. He's the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Adam, and yet he's also divine. Born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, God, very God. Truly God and truly man, this shoot that we've been waiting for is also the eternal source I don't know about you, but that kind of makes me want to worship. And that's precisely what all the nations do here in verse 10. That's how we end it. All the nations make him their banner. This shoot root, this sun source, they make him their banner, they make him their signal flag. He's the one they come to seek, they come to inquire of. And this really does bring us full circle, I think. The messianic branch is, as we've been singing all morning, the hope of all nations. So, we declare to him this Advent season, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come again, Jesus, just as you've promised to consummate all things. Hope of all the earth, thou art. And I can't think of a more fitting way as we begin to ask ourselves the question, what do we, what do, we do about this truth? I can't think of a, a more fundamental, basic way to apply this truth to our lives than to come to the table to partake together in what we affectionately call the Lord's Supper. This is intended to be, church, a memorial meal for God's covenant people to remind us that the Messiah, this branch from David's line, has come to save us from our sin. And it's also a moment for us to prepare our souls with, with vigilance as we remember, yes, he's coming again to usher in this glorious kingdom that we got just a glimpse of here this morning in Isaiah chapter 11. We get just a taste, don't we? Just a little mouthful of what's to come 
as we prepare our hearts for the wedding supper of the Lamb.